I'm Jared Rizzi, and this is At the Table. We are here at Local 16 in Washington, D.C. And if you're able to join us, you should come on down. We do this regularly on Tuesday nights. I've been making what I've realized is a terribly dated West Wing reference. Just the fact that it's a West Wing reference is dated in and of itself. I've been calling it my regular Tuesday suit, and this is what we'll be doing. We'll be here on the, in the ballroom mostly, and which is on the second floor of Local 16, talking a little bit of shop, talking politics, and policy occasionally from time to time when we can afford it. And occasionally we will also be doing debates when they happen and whenever they happen. We were last here in this space on Thursday. We got a chance to do some of the DNC primary debate coverage in uh, on the roof deck of all places, which was a lot of fun, a lot of, uh, well, it was very humid, and I, I sweat a lot. Uh, I, it's actually, it's a lovely end of summer day right now, and we are enjoying uh, not just the, the comforts of Local 16, but also the company of some very talented and smart people. And one of them seated to my right right now is Lucy Solomon, who's Associate Political Director at Indivisible. Lucy, thank you for coming back on At The Table and for joining us here for this evening's program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to chat. We, unfortunately, are not able to talk about anything that's fun. We're not going to be talking about dogs or Zelda or Nicole Cliff's Twitter account. We are going to be talking about politics, which is unfortunately, we could be talking about those other more fun things. Politics can be fun. I would like you to make that argument here today. The last week, like so many weeks and mm, news cycles, have not been fun. No. I'm trying to think, when we were dealing with the debate, as I just mentioned, last Thursday, since then there have been a couple big news pieces. Mostly what I'm thinking about is how... Some of the ridiculous, like it feels like the president is leading us to war with Iran. That's not fun. I would put that in the no. not fun category. In the auspices of your work, there was, I think, an interesting piece about kind of some of where the candidates have come since then. So first of all, let's introduce a little bit of the work you do and the work Indivisible does for people who don't know. Can you explain what role this grassroots organization has and kind of the place you occupy in the firmament of 2020 politics. Indivisible is a grassroots progressive organization. We got our start after the 2016 election, so a lot of our folks are newer to politics than uh, than other folks who've been in this fight for a lot longer. It started as a Google Doc about how to resist the Trump agenda, and since then has really blossomed into an organization with thousands of local groups across the country who are focused on resisting the Trump agenda in their community and then the role I play is since 2017, we've also seen folks really shift to doing a lot of electoral work as well, starting with the race in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, the John Ossoff race, uh, which wound up being the Lucy McBath race. But at the time, back in 2017, we saw local groups, indivisible groups, getting really involved in that election through building the blue wave and retaking the House in 2018. So I'm on the political team at Indivisible, uh, help provide strategic advice and guidance to the grassroots folks on the ground who are really the foot soldiers of uh, the resistance. <laughs> I saw you, you started to grimace at the word foot soldiers, yeah. which I'm guessing, let me put it this way, I remember, because you've been in this job for about two years now, I remember you, around this time in the 2018 cycle, you were already starting to kind of work around the clock. Are you 
at that point now, or are you beyond where you were? Like, how does this cycle? Because people don't always get excited to the same level of enthusiasm. One of the things that I've argued, for example, in this conversation is that if people don't, if your give a damn is so low at this point in the Trump administration, what's it going to take for you to buy in? What do you feel like in terms of people's enthusiasm, the races you're seeing? What is that give a damn? And then how does that translate into how busy you are every day, which I'm guessing is is maybe hard to compare to two years ago, but but I'm going to ask you to try anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I pulled a face at using foot soldiers because of the resistance, because that seems so sort of hashtag activism-y. Or Star Wars. It could be either way. Okay. Well, I'll <laughs> take it. No, uh, but I, I do want to say that our folks, indivisibles around the country, aren't hashtag, they're not just hashtag resistance. They're people who are actually out doing things, who've been doing things since... January 2017, and keep going out there every week, every weekend, taking action. Last week, we had a week of action around defund, defund hate, which is around the upcoming budget fight, and specifically about reducing funding for ICE and CBP. And we had groups, uh, hundreds of groups around the country do actions in their local communities, asking their representatives to who they worked to get elected, who they worked to help retake the House, now to, to show up for them and commit to reducing funding for ICE and CBP. And so they were doing that last week and also hosting debate watch parties, evaluating candidates. So there's this enormous amount of energy we are seeing both on the policy side and the electoral side. These are people who've been in this fight, uh, maybe not for years and years, but certainly since 2016, and they keep showing up every weekend. So it's, it goes far beyond a, a hashtag, not to keep denigrating hashtags, which can be real forces for social good, but it's not just online activism. There's an enormous amount of offline activism still happening every week. That, that leads me to one of the questions that I definitely wanted to ask you about, which is Working Families Party just this week announced their endorsement of Elizabeth Warren for president. That was a bit of a shock to the Sanders campaign. Not only did they get that endorsement in 2016, but we saw the Sanders team, their spokespeople, asking a lot of follow-up questions. What was the delegate count? You know, what was, you know, we want some more transparency here. I know that Indivisible represents uh, th this more progressive slice of the Democratic electorate. What is your perception of this process and, and how it has played out in the last few days? Yeah, I would want to give a huge amount of credit to the folks at WFP who endorsements are really hard. And you guys do a lot of them, so I know that you know this. We have done, uh, well, last cycle was our first cycle doing anything, but we did congressional, gubernatorial, and Senate endorsements last time around. And it is really hard to contemplate doing a presidential endorsement. It's something that has definitely been controversial in our own movement. It's a conversation we're continuing to have with our movement on the potential risks and rewards of an endorsement. We're not committed to making one, but we are committed to having a process to figure out if it's the right thing to do. And so it's really inspiring to see folks like WFP they were able to use this power that they've built up to get candidates on the record. They held interviews with their top candidates to push them on the issues that matter to WFP members. And they had five folks that they were looking at that they, they were very transparent in their process, that there are you know, 20-some people running. We're looking at these five people. We're having sit-down interviews with them. We're going to push them on, on what matters to our membership, and then we're going to vote. So I, I totally applaud them for taking that tough and bold stance of using their power to, to push forward the candidates that they're most excited about. 
In terms of indivisible, because obviously you're not here as a representative of working families, you're here uh, for, for indivisible, where has the, I know you guys aren't at this point making a presidential endorsement, but where has your, the, the people who follow at the grassroots level uh, indivisible, where has their enthusiasm been? There are some candidates that have been doing well, I imagine, to the standards that you that you folks hold, and and how and how has that played out both internally and externally? Yeah, so we'll absolutely want to do a closer examination of candidates' platforms and and policy records, looking to put forward a, a more comprehensive analysis. Right now, what we have is a debate watch guide on our. 2020 website. Which is very useful, by the way. I have totally cribbed notes off of this for every single debate, and I and I unabashedly so, because it's a very good document. Well, there, there are seven real issues that we think are going to be driving 2020, including structural democracy reform, including immigration. And so we want to help not just indivisible members, but folks around the country evaluate where candidates are falling on those issues. Uh, what we've seen is we've done flash poll text message polls. I sound old. Uh, <laughs> SMS polls. <laughs> after every debate, as well as web survey polls. On the web survey, we'll ask our folks, who's every candidate you're still considering, and who's everyone you've ruled out? And an interesting fact is everyone is still considering more than one candidate. We're seeing the vast majority of folks are still considering up to five candidates, uh, which... Well, there's a lot to put in one head at any given time. Well, I mean, that's we've also, we've got a lot of good candidates, too. Well, that's true. I guess that's the burden. That's the positive spin on it. But, How dare you. <laughs> but I would say it's a good problem to have and that our folks are seeing... Uh, you're right that there are folks who are really standing out to indivisibles. We... When we ask sort of that net net favorable, who are you considering, who are you not considering, overall we're seeing Senator Warren has huge amounts of support from our movement, about 75% net favorability. That's on, huge. And I think it's a real testament to the type of campaign she's been running. But she's not the only one who is still generating a lot of excitement and enthusiasm. We're also seeing Mayor Buttigieg, Senator Harris, Senator Booker are all folks who have net positives of people who are still really looking at their their candidacy and haven't rolled them out for 2020. And I noticed that you're not mentioning two people that are talked about in the front runner conversation in national surveys, polls that aren't being done by Indivisible, and that is the ostensible front runner, former Vice President Biden, and Senator Sanders, who has been doing pretty well, has basically been in the second place spot for most polls of this cycle so far. And why it, what can you deduce? or infer from the data that you've been looking at? I don't want to go too far in reading tea leaves and numbers, but I would say both Senator Sanders and former Vice President Biden have run national campaigns before, so nationally they have a lot higher name recognition. The folks who are indivisible activists are really plugged into politics and have been paying very close attention to this race. When we just ask folks for their top choice, you see them perform much better. But they also, we think, have a, a ceiling with a lot of our members, where there are a lot of folks who've already ruled them out as well. Um, I think both of them are running campaigns with real strengths. We'll see that some of these candidates with less name recognition are able to, both for the good and the bad, uh, attract more attention. What's fascinating to me, and this is a Wall Street Journal poll that was just out this week, only 9% in this poll said that they were decided, which means 91% undecided. I, that is a huge number, and I'm, I'm guessing it reflects what you're talking about, which is the people have kind of 
they've narrowed into kind of camps, but by no means individuals that they that they want to represent. The other thing, and I've talked about this on the podcast recently, is and, and this also dovetails neatly into what you're saying about Senator Warren, is that those who are most plugged in prefer her campaign, the, the people who are most interested in you, you identified indivisible members as that kind of per- person. I also think that the kind of people who are listening to this conversation are probably in that camp, and they tend to be Warren supporters. And interestingly, the same kinds of surveys, and I believe this was stuff that was out last week, I believe an NBC poll out last week, which said that the, the contrast was that the people who are least plugged in, the people who are just kind of skimming the surface of the political news tend to be in the Sanders camp, which wouldn't surprise me, but it kind of does because he has so much momentum in the national conversation. Is that, does that, am I wrong in saying that this comports with what you're saying or, or are we saying different things and I'm just papering over the differences in, inappropriately? <laughs> We are still six months out from Super Tuesday. How, again, how dare you? Because we are supposed to be talking about this now because <laughs> this is very, this is the important. So um, Ariel Edwards-Levy, who is who is actually at the uh, National Press Club, what is it, the, uh, the spelling bee that they have every year. And I am, by the way, extremely upset that I have never been invited to be a part of this because I spell very well. Speller? Yes, I am. I'm a terrible speller. No, I'm good. And people don't think that radio people are good spellers. And I am. And I wish I were invited. But that's a separate point. She tweeted out that uh, today that um, we are basically past the point where we have a lot of really good information coming in, and people have mostly exhausted what can be usefully said based on the information we have. And yet we are six months out from <laughs> you know some of the major voting, even from like the first Iowa and New Hampshire. We're still several months out. That does not stop us from needing to have this conversation, Lucy. Absolutely not. Uh, It is your job and also mine. But I would say if we're thinking about people who are super plugged in, like there's no shame in not being super plugged in this early or it's not like indicative of your level of political savvy. You're not a bad person. Or or it's not that I don't know. I mean, you could be, but we don't know. We're not. (laughs) That's not the reason why we would be judging you. Well, we would judge if you were a bad person, but not... Right, but not on that right. alone. Yes, um, so I think it's it's totally fine to still be figuring it out because there is a really broad, good field. I know most people are like, ugh, 20-some candidates, it's terrible. And I did not mind only having one debate night last week. Agree. That was nice, but... Strong agree. That said, while, while I think a lot of people are ready to see the field narrow, people aren't ready to make their final pick just yet. And it's because there are good ideas from every camp. And I think the candidates are pushing them, each other, to be better on issues. I, Julian Castro was the first person to put out a real people-first immigration plan. And then you saw Senator uh, Warren follow up with a, a similar people-first plan. And we're still waiting to see what Senator Sanders puts forward, but I'd imagine it will also be influenced by these ideas. And so that's just one example of sort of a, a race to be best that we is a benefit of having such a broad field. Once again, in an attempt to create controversy for the drama of this podcast, I will say, why are you, with the happiness of just having one debate, why are you against the candidacies of Marianne Williamson and Tulsi Gabbard? What What is it that you are... I'm trying to get Twitter to be mad at you and... I'm giving you a look. Yeah, I know that people can't see the look because it's radio, though. I think it's great to have a broad field of candidates. I think, actually, in particular, 
Marianne Williamson has said some really good things around the issue of reparations. And even someone who is polling quite a bit lower than many in the field is still contributing to what I think is a really healthy primary by pushing candidates who are polling better, like Senators Sanders, Warren, to be better on issues like reparations. And I think we've seen her articulate a vision on that issue that was inspiring to a lot of folks. So whether or not you think that they're going to be your candidate, uh, I think there can be value, even in some of these folks who are, who are polling less highly. And as much as I would like to talk to you as one New Yorker to another about Mayor Bill de Blasio polling at 0%, I will instead move on to one thing that was very much absent from the last round of debates, not just because the person who had been speaking uh, very loudly on it was is, has no longer, is no longer in the race, uh, Senator uh, Gillibrand, but also because I don't think this question has really come up, and it has very rarely been brought up by candidates in answers, and I'm talking, of course, about abortion, about reproductive health, and woman's right to choose. Why has this been ignored in the most recent conversations? I know, for example, Mayor Buttigieg and several other candidates tweeted out about it after the debate, trying to say, hey, we we still care about this. This is something that's really important. But how can you have a Democratic primary debate for president and not talk about Abortion. How can you not talk about Roe versus Wade, the, the, the way that the president has been trying to chip away at it, that Republicans have been at in the state level and the federal level, whether it's in the... I mean, it's just everywhere, and yet this is nowhere in the national conversation. Why, Lucy? Why? Please tell me why. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to do better Please. next time. Um, no, <laughs> it is obviously a crucially important issue, and I agree that it was sorely lacking in Houston and in previous debates. You were referencing Senator Gillibrand had managed to bring the issue up even when it wasn't a top question that the moderators were pushing on. And since she ended her campaign earlier this month, we didn't see that on the stage in Houston, which I I completely agree was a mistake. And it's not, it is because it's a, a crucial policy issue, but that's not the lens that I'm coming to it from. It's also a crucial political issue. President Trump has I wonder if this is still true. I didn't watch the rally in New Mexico, but he had mentioned abortion in every campaign speech he'd given since the State of the Union starting at the beginning of the year. So he sees it as a winning issue for his side. I disagree, but only if we're willing to be bold on protecting reproductive freedoms as well on things like the Hyde Amendment, there are organizations who've been in this fight for a really long time, like All Above All, who've been pushing candidates on this for a really long time. And we're finally seeing that most Democrats uh, running for office are pro-choice. We're seeing many fewer anti-choice Democrats. There's not really room in our party for anyone who's trying to control a person's right to their own bodily autonomy. So I think that's been really great movement that we've seen, but maybe folks think it's a resolved issue then. I don't know. Maybe that's why they're not asking about it, but it's not. So I definitely hope in Ohio that the moderators do press candidates on abortion and, and reproductive freedoms. And when will the next... I feel like these debates have all... Even even I, who feel like I'm reasonably, reasonably plugged in, I have no concept of when these next debates are coming. Why, why is it... Is it just because I'm trying to be kind to myself? Is this self-care? Yes. Yeah. Okay, when are the next... Is it in like 20 minutes that the next debates it's begin? It's not 20 minutes. Okay. It's in October. Okay. In Ohio, in the middle of the month. Okay, that's good. Okay, so I have some time. Okay, 
That's good. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing it right now. I know I'm missing the spelling bee, but I can I can live with that. Although I cannot live with constantly being ignored. I'm very good. Okay. I even know the word that I lost on in the only spelling bee that I've ever lost, which I will tell you, even though you didn't ask, because no, it please. is so no, it is so perfect because it's the word anxious. <laughs> and how good is that for a man as neurotic as I am? You mentioned a moment ago, and again, this is Lucy Solomon, who's the Associate Political Director at Indivisible. Uh, You mentioned a moment ago that the Democratic Party and specifically the progressives that you are trying to uh, motivate that women's bodily autonomy should not be up for grabs uh, among Democrats. And that is something that has come to a head for several members of Congress. I'm thinking now of a Democrat in Illinois, uh, Dan Lipinski, who is being primaried and being endorsed by uh, AOC. Uh, this, is, this is Newman, who is the, the, the challenger that he's facing. In Murray this. Newman, yeah. So this is something that, again, or abortion is becoming uh, an inflection point, not just on the right, and you said that President Trump believes it to be a winning issue, but also liberals and progressives think that it can be a winning issue to get these anti-choice Democrats out of office. Do you agree? So I I think there's a slight difference there in that uh, Illinois' third congressional district, which is the one you're talking about, is a deep blue district. There's no, this isn't a swing district we're talking about. This is a primary against an incumbent Democrat who is bad on issues of choice, but also on issues of immigration. He voted against the ACA. So there are there are a number of reasons that someone might look at Dan Lipinski and think he's not reflective of the district he's representing, including choice, which is crucial, but also he's out of step with the district in, in a number of ways. Frankly, it also is the kind of district that Cortez won herself, right? Like this is the kind of that Ocasio-Cortez won herself. I mean, this is the, the kind of you know safe blue seat but not necessarily someone who's representing all these things and kind of ticking the boxes. She's making the effort to push candidates to the left on these issues. I I guess the other version of this question would be, is this a net positive for Democrats if it increases people's enthusiasm, or does it potentially, does it have a, a potentially deleterious effect if it takes away people with high name recognition, decent, you know, uh, representation on committee level, reasonable power in the appropriations. I don't, I'm trying to imagine the argument that could be made if I were Dan Lipinski's campaign manager and saying, you know, why would you get rid of me? I've been here for a long time doing good and things. And it was his dad's seat before his, so really, really long time. Yeah. Well. Um, Separate issue, I suppose, but we could talk about that at some other point. Well, but actually, I do think I do think that's relevant in that. And when I'm talking about this issue, this is something that I'm I'm grounded in the fact that I know that our local folks are also really united behind Marie Newman. They've endorsed her in coalition. A, a number of local indivisible groups have. And so, what we're hearing from people who actually live in this community is that maybe the Lipinski family was a good fit for this seat a long time ago, but now they're not anymore. And I think that we're seeing that across the country is that people expect Democrats to actually stand for something. I don't <laughs> I don't always know why they expect that given <laughs> the track record, but once again a look that you gave me that was perfect that people won't get to appreciate. But I think we're seeing candidates like <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like Ayanna Presley in 
safe blue seats, but we're also seeing folks in more purple seats who are taking... The Katie Porters of the House. Exactly. Katie Porter is a great example in California, who are taking more bold, progressive stances because people want their representatives to stand for something. So that includes issues like choice. It includes issues like immigration. And so... I wouldn't be surprised to see more of that in 2020, not just in primary challenges in safe blue seats, but also in open primaries where you're seeing more progressive candidates running nationally around the country and in, and in statewide races, too. You mentioned that there's, there's local indivisible groups that endorse, but you, I know that this is, this is kind of like a, it's, it's not a national indivisible endorsement. How does this work for you guys where you have these kind of local level but not net like this isn't this isn't indivisible at writ large who's making this endorsement this is the Illinois third or whatever their representative is yeah so we are relaunching our national endorsement program in October so right now at this exact moment in time we're not making any national endorsements we have to be really thoughtful about the way we run our endorsement process because we want to be grounded in what people who actually live in the communities want. So any national indivisible endorsement, and we endorse right now for US House, US Senate, and governor's races, has to start with a local group. So all national endorsements start with a local group making an endorsement in their community and nominating the candidate for a national endorsement. And at that point, we'd send a candidate questionnaire. If the candidate passes the questionnaire, we then put it back to a vote of everyone on our list in the district, and they have to get over 60%. So it's a it's a long process. <laughs> Are these tough questions? I mean, what are you asking these people? I mean, this is, is so last cycle, Like math, or is it like? There's no math. I was told there would be no math. There's no math. <laughs> but I do think they're tough questions. <laughs> okay. So last cycle, one of the hardest, we had an, a number of questions that folks sometimes struggled with. One of the hardest was that in 2018, we didn't endorse any candidates nationally who took corporate PAC money. Gotcha. So that there were candidates who did the who did the math and decided that Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that for their campaign, it was more important to be able to accept corporate contributions. There were, I think, we endorsed 74 candidates nationally last time around in both primaries and general elections. So obviously there were quite a few, including candidates like Beto O'Rourke running for Senate who raised enormous amounts of money while rejecting PAC, and not just corporate PAC, but all PAC money. So that was definitely a, a challenging issue for folks last time around, and, and there will be issues. We're certainly looking at issues like structural democracy reform and, and immigration, which are our top organizational priorities for 2020. And when you're talking about structural uh, democracy reform, you're also talking about you know, reinvigorating the votes, Voting Rights Act, you're talking about felon voting, you're talking about, like, all these things that are, these are potent issues, right? Like, this is, so people need to be kind of on the record for these, even if that's not necessarily an animating issue wherever they're running for... for Democracy is always an animating issue, Jared. <laughs> I would say there's a reason, it, it's a joke, but I'm also serious. There's a reason that H.R. 1, the first bill that Democrats put out when they retook the House, is focused on democracy reform. Right. Our democracy is in a state of crisis. Trump is a symptom of much deeper flaws in our democracy. So I do think that there is a real appetite for pushing back against corruption, for reinvigorating voting rights, for addressing uh, courts and whether people DC statehood well and whether people are here in the district 
you know, giving a damn about statehood or whether they're concerned about why the NRA seems to have so much sway over their elected officials or whether they're concerned about why the Electoral College in almost every close race favors the Republican. Uh, these are these are structural issues that tend to to, to be important. So I, I, I the, the joke well made, but I feel like you're you're absolutely right. Let's let's pivot to the other thing that you mentioned that you want to make sure you have people on board on for these indivisible surveys that you're putting out or or the questionnaires that you're putting out to candidates. And again, as you mentioned with abortion a few minutes ago, this is a topic that the president believes is a winning issue for him. And of course, I'm talking about immigration. The president has made who is in this country and who gets to stay in this country and who gets to vote in this country a central part of both his original election campaign and certainly the the reelect campaign. I'm guessing that this is going to continue to be uh, an issue that he harps on at just about every event because it certainly seems to animate his base. Why do you believe that it's a winning issue for progressives? I think if you look at Trump's base, that's the percent of people who still support him. So that's hovering around 40%. If you look at the percent of people who think that building a wall is a good idea, that's right around 40% too. If you look at the folks who are siding with him on immigration, yes, that's his base. We're not going to win those people in 2020. But Vice President Biden believes that we can talk to those people and that they will then come around and give him things that he would like. Your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's, my theory of electoral change is different than Vice President Biden's. And one of us is right, maybe. So. (laughs) All right, well, let let me let let you get back to immigration because that was was an unfair aside that could easily take the rest of the time that we have. No, but I do think it actually does tie back to immigration in that my theory of how we win in 2020 is The Democratic base is voters of color. Core Democratic voters are voters of color. We saw voters of color turn out at very high rates in 2018. We need to continue to give people a reason to vote for Democrats as opposed to just we're not as bad as the other side. And I think if we're looking at that multiracial coalition that we really need to build to win, which is voters of color, young voters, women voters, white college-educated women in particular who make up a lot of indivisible members, we've seen immigration be a galvanizing issue for all of those different uh, segments of the voting population. So those are the indivisible movement is made up of lots of different folks, but disproportionately college-educated, many women, many suburban voters. And these are the people who are holding those defund hate actions last week. So immigration is a motivating issue for people. And it's It's family separation, but it's family separation both at the border and in our communities. There's a real sense that the role that ICE is playing in this administration and has played in previous administrations is no longer acceptable and that we should be working to create a humane, people-first immigration system. And the president, of course, you you mentioned that... Democrats, progressives can't just be better than Trump on this issue, but the president has made... No, I mean, certainly I, I think he has shown the, the, the distance you can go on lack of shame in American politics, but his contrast couldn't be more stark when he says, as he did in his New Mexico rally this week, do you believe in Hispanics or the United States of America? I mean, this is, 
this is pretty much diametrically opposed to the defund hate agenda that you're discussing, right? Like he's he's setting the, the terms pretty starkly, even if his supporters would like it to be a little bit more sugar-coated than that, he's not really offering, or if they want to say for respectability or so that they're not turned away from being on Dancing with the Stars, for example, uh, they, they, they want to have that sugar-coating. Uh, they, they, that's still the message. It's still this, it may be sugar-coated, but it's still a very spiky pill. I think that's the real choice for our side, right? It's we know that his side will be completely polarized using incredibly hateful, toxic language to attack people in our communities. And our response is, do we actually say, no, we stand for the opposite of this? Or do we say, well, border security is important, or some immigrants are great, we should let people with PhDs into this country. I mean, that's, that's very offensive as well. And that's not standing up for your values. That's saying... We don't want to risk alienating anyone, so we're going to offer the white bread version of immigration reform. And so some people think that's a better road to winning. I think it's better to actually live our values and put forward platforms that recognize the humanity of immigrants and commit to actually doing something more than previous Democratic administrations have done on the issue of immigration. When you talk about getting voters excited about what Democrats stand for. And when you talk about issues that animate voters potentially in this cycle, and again, my argument has been from the very beginning, if you you aren't lighting your hair on fire at this point, what will it take, right? Like what, but again, that's, that's probably not the person who's listening to this conversation right now. And I'm, and I'm grateful for your, for your time and that you're here. And again, if you're just tuning into this, this is Lucy Solomon, who is the Associate Political Director at Indivisible. When we talk about what Democrats stand for, one thing that has been infuriating, I think, for myself and a lot of people who are observing in the past few years uh i'm just thinking about how long this has bugged me and it's 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 years is something that has continued to come up just this week which is that democrats in elected official capacities are not holding the administration to account and i'm thinking most specifically of in the last year and a half especially where democrats have held control of the house that's what they were voted in for in 2018 and in 2019 so far so we're we're nine months into 2019 and there has not been an effective in my estimation use of oversight and just this week we saw yet again with the Corey lewandowski hearings with other subpoenas that are essentially being ignored from congressional democrats that Democrats stand for basically having a hearing about the president's, uh, you know, crimes, potential alleged crimes, but not for actual impeachment hearings, not for um, holding people to account. We can talk about the Kavanaugh piece of all this if if your stomach can bear it. But you know, th- this is really upsetting, I think, to the to the Democratic voter. It's certainly something that was promised to the Democratic voter as, hey, you were expecting a Hillary Clinton presidency. That's why you voted Republican in 2016 for many of these congressional seats. Guess what? You didn't get that. And we need to hold this president to account. Where has that been? And where will it be when Democrats, progressives are looking for votes in 2020? So there's a, there's a lot there. Yes. Sorry. I'm a little excitable. No, it's an issue you can... 
I can get very excited about as well. I think I'd start by pushing back on the idea that hearings are not also useful. I completely agree that they're not enough, but for example, Representative Jayapal today did a really good job during her questioning. And so I think that gives an opportunity for people to point out where the real lies are that this administration has been telling. So there is there is public value in doing that. For people who didn't hear it, she basically pushed Lewandowski on the specific question of, well, it's either your version of this or the president's public version of this that's true. They can't both be true. And Lewandowski basically sat there with his mouth open. <laughs> but again, the president wasn't I mean, I mean, right. It's not. That's enough. a good TV moment, or it's a good C-SPAN moment. But I don't know if it's a. No, what well, what, that, can, what that, are we gonna do with that? That'll take me off a whole nother uh, path on like the importance of witnessing and accountability. And I think that's uh, that's more my husband is a PhD student uh, in poli sci. That's more his field than mine. But I will say I agree that it's not enough. I think we did see a lot of movement this past August. Indivisible groups around the country were holding impeachment August events when members were back in their districts. And we did see a, a number of representatives come out for the first time in favor of opening an impeachment inquiry. We have seen movement on that issue. But I will also say I, I do agree in general, Democrats have not been using their authority in the way that we would hope to hold this administration accountable on corruption and the the myriad issues where they have failed to live up uh, to just the the most basic bar of what a presidential administration should be. Um, we're seeing that right now, actually, in Massachusetts' first congressional district. Representative Neal is facing a primary challenge from. Alex Morse, who's the mayor of Holyoke in Massachusetts. And it's interesting because Indivisible actually endorsed Representative Neal's opponent back in 2018. And one of the issues she was running on was, OK, you're in the minority, but I think we should be pushing more because he has committee authority as chair of Ways and Means. On the political side, we saw that that was uh, an animating issue in the 2018 race and that Neal was saying, Representative Neal was saying, once I have that authority, I will use it to hold the administration accountable. And we haven't seen him really take the ball and run with it yet. So now he's facing another primary challenge on the, on the same grounds. And I think his constituents really do expect more in terms of holding this administration accountable. And again, I hate to push back on this because I know that this has been a very polite conversation so far, and I don't want to. <laughs> I'm going to keep it polite no matter yeah. what. I know you try. you're just so so Episcopalian on this. Um, but here here's the here's my pushback, which is that voters were promised this, and we keep getting this message from Democratic leadership that this will either be confusing or that it'll depress voters. I, I mean depressing in both the emotional sense or and also in the turnout sense, that it's not going to be an animating issue. And yet every Democrat that I talk to about this is the exact opposite. They want to see. They're, they're desperate to see some accountability. And by the way, not just Democrats, lots of independents, plenty of Republicans are like, no, this this stuff should be investigated. And if this were Barack Obama's administration doing any of this, we would have been burning down the Capitol doing these investigations. So I, I don't understand. Democrats have in the White House one of the most unpopular presidents in history, and yet they seem to be so gun-shy about even scratching the surface of these myriad crimes. For progressive voters, when you talk to indivisible 
grassroots people, and, and when you have these conversations, I'm guessing in office meetings, or whether you're talking to voters, and I know that you'll be traveling more in the 2020 cycle, what is the answer to the person who says, this isn't enough, this isn't nearly enough? I feel that way on this issue and a lot of other issues. We've already talked about two other issues that I think will be crucial for 2020 where many Democrats are not doing enough or saying enough or being bold enough. So we've talked about abortion, we've talked about immigration. I agree on accountability for this administration as well. I think you can say the same thing on issues like healthcare, on Medicare for all, on issues like gun safety. So I think there are we're seeing actually a lot of presidential candidates. I think Mayor Buttigieg said it in the July debates where he said, listen, no matter what we do, they're gonna call us far left socialists. We can put out the most milquetoast, boring healthcare plan that doesn't cover people, or we can say, yeah, let's do Medicare for all. And no matter what, they're gonna say that we're far left socialists. So let's do the thing that actually reflects the values we say we have. And I would say that should be the case across the board on accountability, on abortion, on immigration, on gun safety, on health care, on climate justice, really every issue you can think about, we should be taking the bolder stance. Because if you give people a choice between a Republican, a far right Republican, and a Republican light, and they're a Republican, they're going to vote for the Republican. And yeah. if they're a Democrat, they might stay home. So, And I get that when it comes to policy issues. But again, I, I, I promised I would keep this civil, but I'm so frustrated by this that I just can't. It's not my fault, Jerry. I know it's not your fault, and it's not my fault I either. Can't, I can't make them do it. Why won't you make them do it, Lucy? Because this is... Let me, let me ask the question in a way that I know that you can actually answer. Have you seen any indication that the kind of voters who are active in indivisible politics that are, that are member organizations are mollified or satisfied in any way by what is coming out of the Democratic leadership in terms of oversight and accountability for this administration? I, <laughs> I wanna just be like, no. But I would say, <laughs> I would say people are appreciative of the members who've been listening. And I know you're asking about leadership in particular, but I do think it's worth noting that a lot more members have been coming out. Newly elected members, members in purple districts have been coming out in favor of increased accountability, in favor of an, an impeachment inquiry. So there are some folks willing to take potentially politically dicey stances or potentially politically beneficial. We don't really know what the impact of increased accountability would be electorally, but we know it's the right thing to do. And our folks are glad to see members who are acknowledging that. So then I have to ask the question about Kavanaugh, which of course is percolating this week. I do, because this is my job, which is, is there, is there room in the Democratic progressive side of politics? Is there an appetite for an impeachment inquiry of someone who is accused of the kinds of things he's accused of? I mean, these are, these are heinous things. They're not new, but there's certainly more corroboration now, and there would have been more corroboration if Republicans in the Senate hadn't blockaded it a, you know, a year ago. But is there, is there an appetite? Again, we know what the right thing to do is. I'll use your own words against you because that's the kind of person I am. Uh, we know what the right thing to do is, but is it good politics? And I guess that's the only reason why we wouldn't do it at this point, right? So I don't want to get out of my lane in that we have people at our organization who are much smarter than me when it comes to issues. Like strong, strong disagree. When it comes to policy issues, absolutely. And people who've done deep thinking about the role of the Supreme Court and 
how we can interact with that. I will say we we believe Christine Blasey Ford. We believe Deborah Ramirez. We did last year. We continue to. He should not be on the Supreme Court. I think. I know my my spiel is politics, but I think my basic uh, instinct is that voters will reward people for doing the right thing. I know that's like very optimistic and kind of naive sounding, but I do believe when you see candidates who are willing to actually run on their values that that they will win. Well, if that is true, and I hope it is, uh, I hope uh, I wish you a lot of success. If people want to (laughs) get involved uh, in their local indivisible group or if they want to pester you on Twitter, what's the best way? What's the best way to do either of those things? <laughs> um, if they want to pester me on Twitter, uh, it's at lch underscore sol s o l. And to get involved in your local indivisible group, uh, you can go to indivisible.org. If you're interested in the 2020 race in particular, there's 2020.indivisible.org, which has our resources on the issues we think will really motivate the electorate in the 2020 election and are most important for us to be talking about and a debate watch guide will be updating it for october so and again seriously i have no i, I have absolutely no shame in admitting that i have crypt, crypt notes for every every single <laughs> it's debate. very beautiful too well i mean you know that's that's re- less relevant for me but you know <laughs> I, I just i i have absolutely no appreciation for document beauty but i i will say that i've appreciated the content which has been fantastic um again lucy solomon has been joining me she is the associate political director over at indivisible she's been doing a lot of work and i think you were, what what's the percentage of the time between now and november 2020 that you will be on the road what do you anticipate at this point hopefully not too much or not as much because we've been staffing up oh, a good. bunch so we have um amazing organizers who work in communities around the country we have a fully staffed political team for the first time so i'm really excited to have people lean into their own expertise too uh so so a, a decent amount but not as much as last time well last cycle i mean for people who uh who really need to know this this important piece of information <laughs> last cycle was very difficult for our uh, dnd group of which you That's are uh, a member and and so i want to just make sure in terms of being able to schedule that that we can actually get <laughs> get you around while while we're looking at the next because because these Certain villains need your direct attention, and those are the ones that I have prepared for you in our the campaign. Ones you can control the ones I directly control. I'll maybe, ask my boss about it. Maybe this is why I'm so desperate for these answers about accountability, because I'm used to having ultimate control, and that goes back to me not knowing the word anxious. I'm Jared Rizzi, and this has been at the table. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Lucy Solomon for her time today. Uh, thank you for uh, the space here in Local 16. Amana Ayub has been completely generous and wonderful and local 16 16th and u street here in the district has been a wonderful place for us to to call home our kind of third place uh for uh for both the people who have been able to join us and for people who are looking for a way to have some food and drink and some good times away we are here uh, regular nights tuesday and uh i hope you will be able to come and be a part of it usually we're up on the second floor ballroom thanks also to ak adams who's my producer and engineer this evening always does a wonderful job at that and is a very good friend and a brilliant philosopher in his own right. A full version of this conversation will be available to patrons, uh, patreon.com slash join slash Jared Rizzi, uh, and you can uh, become a patron and uh, get all the parts of this that you may have missed uh, and also support the kind of conversation that we're having where we focus on 
uh, a political conversation that that sucks less than some of the other ones that are out there. I, I, I'll just, uh, you know, that's the short version of the pitch. It's not my best version of the pitch, but it is the shortest. Thank you. Thank you.